This podcast is an unedited excerpt from an MCLE program presented at MCLE's Conference Center in Boston, Massachusetts. Get 24-7 instant access to over 500 civil litigation e-lectures and more with a subscription to the MCLE Online Pass. Learn more at www.mcle.org slash online pass. Please note that MCLE's products, services, and communications are offered solely as an aid to developing and maintaining professional competence. The statements in this recording may not apply to your circumstances, and no legal, tax, accounting, or other professional advice is being rendered by MCLE or its speakers. For full terms and conditions, please see the MCLE website. Hi, good morning, everybody. Um, First off, let me tell you, I hurt my back over the weekend. I have trouble standing, so I apologize if midway through I just decide I'm going to sit down. <laughs> so, but, uh, so you I'm are, gonna... in fact, on medication. Those weren't real pills. They were not just props. Uh, so, uh, but, but I'm going to start and try and do my best. Uh, secondly, I have an outline, and that should be in the materials that... Uh, I used to say when I did this, uh, have been handed out to you, but now I guess they're available to you online through whatever packet they deliver to you to you online. And if you uh, look at that outline, which I'm working off of, you're going to find out, as happens every year, that I don't make it all the way through the outline. I only make it part way through the outline. Um, basically, I just sort of keep talking. It's like the Oscars until I hear some music. <laughs> And then I keep talking through that, and then they just cut to the commercial. So, um, but there's no need for concern, because I'm talking about strategic considerations um, in preparing to take a deposition, and the role of depositions, and the overall discovery plan, that sort of stuff. And um, I get through that. And a lot of the stuff that's at the end of the outline is stuff that we end up covering over, over the course of the day. So, uh, so if, if I don't make it through, which I expect will be the case, uh, no reason for no cause for alarm. Uh, we we will get to that. And Car, how I've got till what about? Uh... You have until ten thirty. Okay. Um, so, uh, like I said, I'm here to talk to you about strategic considerations in preparing uh, to take a deposition. And so, what exactly does that mean? Um, well, I've looked up the word strategy uh, on the internet. And strategy is described, at least in one definition, as an elaborate and systematic plan of action. Another definition has it as an alternative chosen to make happen a desired future. Which sounded a little to me like Yoda had written that definition, (laughs) that, that, that description. But the point is, from descriptions like that, and when you're talking about strategy, you're talking about big picture stuff. You know, what you should be considering, um, both before you start taking any depositions, and then what you should be considering with respect to any particular deposition that you're going to be taking, the strategy. And uh, the, the, the problem when you're talking about strategy, when you're trying to give a talk to folks about strategy, is that strategy, talking about strategy raises more questions than it provides answers. Because strategy needs to be flexible. Strategy needs to depend on uh, a whole bunch of factors that you're going to consider 
about your case. So there are very few absolutes when you're talking about what's the best strategy to take a deposition. Uh, that's a little bit different than when you're giving a talk about what are, do the rules say about how you go and take a deposition. So I'm not going to give you a lot of answers here. Maybe there'll be one or two uh, things. But what I hope I'm going to be able to do uh, is give you some questions and things that you ought to be thinking about um, when you start a case uh, and you're deciding on what depositions you should be taking, what order you should be taking them, what you should be doing during those depositions. Uh, like I said, I want to leave you with those questions for you to think about because the answer is really going to depend on the specifics uh, of the case. So before taking any depositions in a case, you, you really need to be thinking deep thoughts about the case. And that includes thinking about what the client's goals are, what the client's expectations are. Uh, for example, is this a case where your client has said they really want to settle the case quickly? Uh, they don't have a big budget in the case? They want to, you know, if they're a plaintiff, they want to just get some money and move on. Uh, if they're a defendant, they want to just pay some money. They don't want to spend a lot of time um, taking up the time of their, if it's a company, of their employees who have to show up. They don't want to be spending a lot of legal fees. If, if, that's, your, if that's your client's goal, then that may have an impact on what order of depositions you take, Okay. Because, for example, in that case, maybe what you want to do is you want to take one or two key depositions of the most important people first uh, so that you get enough information so that you get yourself in a position to settle. Uh, now, if it's a different kind of case, for example, a case where it's pretty clear, and there are some cases like this, this is going to be a long slog. This case isn't going to be settling anytime soon. Um, there's going to be lots of documents exchanged, there's going to be interrogatories, there's going to be lots of depositions, and the case will probably settle because 97% or some ridiculous percentage of that, like that of cases ultimately settle, but you sort of know from the get-go that this is going to be one that's not going to settle uh, for, for quite some time. Well, then maybe you want to wait on those key depositions, uh, and maybe you want to get other information first so that when you go to take those key depositions, you will have a body of information that, that you've gotten through discovery that you otherwise wouldn't have if you took those key depositions first. So those are the kind of, some of the kinds of things you want to think about. Other things you want to consider is, what are your client's resources? What are the other party's resources? Is there a mismatch of resources? Uh, do, do you have does your client have a lot more resources than the other side? Uh, because if so, then maybe you want to you want to stretch things out. You want to take a lot of discovery. You want to make this expensive for the other side. It doesn't mean take discovery in bad faith. Doesn't mean you know take take discovery that you know there's no argument for why you should be taking it. Uh, but it maybe does argue for taking seven or eight depositions in a case where if you didn't have the resources, you'd only take two depositions and that you're trying to win a war of attrition. So on the other hand, maybe the other, client, the other side has a lot more resources than your client has. And if this case goes on for any great length of time, they're going to be worn down. They're not, they can't afford to litigate. Maybe in circumstances like that, um, 
you're going to want to try and limit the number of depositions and not allow this to become a situation where you just get your client just gets ground down by you know discover, by discovery requests if that's the case how are you going to how are you going to do that well you know maybe you can try probably wouldn't be successful you can try and enter into an agreement with the other side that you're going to limit the number of depositions maybe you can uh, get the assistance from the court uh, if you're in the Massachusetts State Court and you're in the business litigation session, uh, they have a pilot program where the judge takes more control over discovery uh, than judges typically do in state court. And you can maybe get in front of the judge and say to the judge um, that you want to really try and, you know, have this case focus judge on, uh, on the most important discovery. Or maybe you want to try and narrow, the, narrow it or, or stratify it so that you take depositions first that relate to liability and then you'll take depositions after that that relate to uh, that relate to damages try and get the try and get the judge's assistance whether so, you're going to want to do that or not again so, is going to depend uh, in part perhaps on what resources your clients have um, Peter one thing that I've started paying closer attention to um, in looking forward to depositions is when it comes to documents right because you typically do documents before depositions and if I can look ahead to see that maybe there are some folks or if I want to have narrower depositions or um, perhaps some clients to not be deposed or at least have a fighting chance I'll spend more time and energy trying to limit the custodians from a discovery standpoint. Now, you may not be able to do so, but if you can look forward to what your deposition strategy is, it might inform on your document strategy up front of who your custodians are, the scope of discovery, um, and the like. So another important area. Um, if you're in federal court in Massachusetts, the local rules say that, you know, absent permission from the judge, each side um, or, and, and, or group of parties that have the same interest are limited to a total of 10 depositions uh, per side. And each deposition is limited to seven hours, one day. Um, very different from the state court rules where there's no limit on depositions uh, unless you get court intervention and where there's no limit on the length of the de depositions unless you get court intervention. And I've certainly been involved in cases where we've, you know, taken, you know, depositions of parties that have gone on two, three, four, and in one case, five days. You're not able to do that in federal court um, unless you've either got agreement of the other parties uh, or you've got intervention by the judge and agreement by the judge. So those are things that you've got to sort of keep in mind as you're planning depositions. You know, if you're limited to 10 depositions, and 10 depositions is a lot, uh, for most cases, but it's not a lot for really complicated cases, um, you know, you're going to have to think what are the priorities of those depositions. So you're going to have to think, do I need to go to court if I can't get the other side to agree uh, to try and get uh, permission from a judge uh, to, take, to take more than 10 depositions? So all of this goes to say that, you know, even just right at the get-go um, of a case, one of the things you ought to be thinking about, because when you're thinking, of, you've got to be thinking about discovery, uh, and you're going to be thinking about how depositions fit into that discovery, uh, and you've got to be, again, looking at the big picture of the case uh, in, in making some of these decisions 
uh, about about how you're going to proceed. Um, so well, let's turn to the question of whom to depose. Uh, and I know I told you uh, before that there are very few absolutes that I'm that I'm going to give you very few answers. That, uh, that mostly I'm going to give you questions. Uh, maybe one of the closest exceptions to that is with respect to whom to depose, and one party you're almost always going to want to depose is the other side. Um, and there are downsides to taking the deposition of the the you know principal party on the other side. When you ask questions at a deposition, you inevitably give away to the other side what your theory of the case is, what facts you think are important. Uh, there's always expense to any deposition, uh, which is something you're going to have to to consider. Uh, so there are downsides to taking to taking uh, anybody's anybody's deposition or any depositions in a case. But the downside to not taking the adverse party's deposition is that you end up getting sued for malpractice because that's pretty close to a basic. <laughs> is that uh, if you're in a civil litigation, you're almost always going to take uh, the deposition um, of the the other party. If it's a corporation, you're going to want to probably take a, what we call a 30B6 deposition, which I think we'll be hearing about more today, uh, which is how you take a deposition of a corporation. Uh, if it's an individual, uh, you know, if you've got a, if you've got a uh, uh, medical malpractice case and you're the plaintiff, uh, you're going to want to take the deposition of the doctor who you claim committed malpractice. And if you're the doctor who's defending the case, uh, you're the lawyer for the doctor who's defending the case. Well, you're certainly, almost certainly, going to want to take the deposition of the plaintiff who claims that you committed malpractice. Uh, the the only time I can really think of an exception for that, uh, and I can't ever think of a case where I haven't taken the deposition of the of the other side in a case that has actually proceeded to depositions. Sometimes you settle cases, or you know, before you get to the deposition phase. Um, is I, I was involved in a criminal case where you don't generally don't get to take depositions, but if that criminal case had been a civil case, it was a it was a fraud case. Um, the the equivalent of the party on the other side had testified um, multiple days uh, in front of the Securities and Exchange Commission, in front of the Massachusetts equivalent, um, the State Securities Division. They had given multiple affidavits because they had been investigated by the SEC and by the State Securities Division. They'd been sued by other parties. That was a case where uh, I had just a whole raft of sworn testimony by the other side. Um, and, you know, I, I, you know, transcripts, days and days of transcripts of other people who had taken their depositions uh, and had asked questions mostly that I would have asked. You know, had I gone through it all, could I have thought of a few others? Yeah, I could have. But that was a case where I had so much information, so much sworn testimony by them that was relevant that had it been a civil case, I probably would not have <clears throat> taken, their, taken their deposition uh, because I would not have wanted to give away by my questions what I considered important um, when I already had in my pocket for cross-examination at trial uh, a raft of, of sworn testimony by them. But that's a rare exception, and I'd say, you know, unless anybody on the panel wants to chime in and say otherwise, I'd say that generally one of the, peop one of the things you're going to, one of the people or parties that you're going to depose is the party on the, on the other side. 
Okay, Let, let's talk about uh, another type of witness, fact witnesses. Um, the, the, the person who happened to be on the street when the accident took place, okay? Um, or in a corporate context, maybe some, uh, you know, some vendor that was dealing with the party, uh, you know, that's dealing with the party on the other side. Uh, someone who doesn't, you know, generally really have an axe to grind in the, in the case, who isn't out to get you, maybe isn't your friend, but, it, but isn't your enemy. The guy's standing on the street when the accident happened, okay? Uh, he's just going to tell you, tell, you, tell you what he saw. Um, Though a witness like that, now, um, before you decide to take their deposition, you want to really weigh the need to take their deposition versus the dangers of taking their deposition, and you want to throw into that mix what other alternatives do you have? Uh, do you need their sworn testimony, or do you just need the information they can give you so that you can just go and find out, uh, you know, ch chase down whatever leads they give you. Uh, if it's just information, can you obtain it um, by, by interviewing the person uh, instead of actually bringing them in for a deposition? Now, I know a lot of relatively new lawyers say, can I do that? I mean, there's a lawsuit going on. Can I just go in and talk to people? Uh, and the answer is, there are some excep exceptions, but generally, yes, you can. There's no rule that says that just because a lawsuit is started, you can't go out and, and try and talk to people. Now, there's a whole issue about whether you, want it, whether you can talk to former employees of a company on another side, um, and there are rules about when you can do that and when you can't do that. Um, uh, and if somebody is represented, if you know that a party's represented, uh, you can't just go and talk to them. You have to go through their lawyer. That's an ethical rule. Um, but there's no rule that says that if you want to get information from parties, from, from not parties, from, from persons or companies that have information about the case, that you have to do it in the formal setting of a, of a deposition. Um, you, and, and so that's something you want to give a lot of thought to. Uh, do you want to just go and, and interview the witnesses? Big advantages of interviewing the witnesses are the other side isn't there uh, to, to, to hear all of the questions you're asking. The other side isn't necessarily isn't there to be asking their own questions. Uh, you don't have the expense of a deposition. Depositions are expensive. Uh, they're expensive because of the time involved, and they're expensive because transcripts cost a fortune. Uh, you know, usually somewhere between five hundred and a thousand dollars for a, for a, you know for an out paying out of pocket for a for a transcript for a day. So there are there are those there are those advantages, and if the witness tells you something that you know is really helpful to you. Uh, and you want to make sure that you have the witness locked down on that, uh, you can prepare an affidavit and ask them if they're willing to sign an affidavit. Uh, I think this is something that happens in, in personal injury cases, um, which I don't have a ton of experience with. I have a little bit of experience with. Um, you go and you enter, and, uh, and, you know, and I think we've got some people on the panel that have more. Uh, you go and you, you, you interview the witness, and if you get helpful information, 
You ask them if they're prepared to sign an affidavit. And then you have them locked down. Now, the bad news is you can't generally use an affidavit at trial. You have to call the witness at trial. So you're going to have to make a calculation um, if you go by this route that the witness is going to be available for trial. Um, if the witness is, you know, and, and, and you're just going to have to sort of look at the whole situation. If the witness is a young, apparently healthy person who's lived in Massachusetts their whole life, their whole family's here, they tell you they plan to live here um, for, forever, uh, then maybe you say, okay, there's a pretty good likelihood this witness is going to be available at trial. And I can call them at trial, and I know what they're going to say because I've interviewed them and I've got their affidavit. And at trial, if they say something different, uh, I can, I can cross-examine them by using their affidavit. And I will have avoided having brought the other side in to hear the questions I asked, to give the other side the opportunity to interview the witness themselves, unless they've gone out and, and, and done it on their own. Uh, and, I've, and I've saved the expense of, uh, of a deposition transcript. So that's, a, you know, that's something you want to consider. On the other hand, despite everything that I've just said about this witness, maybe they do move away from Massachusetts. And then you've got a big problem because you don't have subpoena power uh, to bring them in front of the court to try the case. You can try to get the judge to let you take a uh, deposition of them for purposes of trial, um, but judge might say, no, you should have taken your depositions uh, when the discovery period took place. And then, of course, the other thing is nobody can cheat death. So you might have a you know, very healthy witness in their 20s who says they're going to stay in Massachusetts forever, and you think, great, they're going to be here a year from now when the case goes to trial, and then some you know, horrible misfortune befalls them. They, uh, they you know, are killed in an accident or, or get sick and die. Uh, and then you've got an affidavit that uh, most likely you're not going to be able to, to use. Well, one uh, sort of practical point, um, and Peter's absolutely right. When I first started practicing, um, I had the senior partner tell me to go out and interview people in the exact same way. Can I do that? And shockingly, people would talk to you and sign affidavits sitting there in Dunkin' Donuts drafting it up. Um, but be mindful that, of course, um, none of that's privileged. <laughs> So anything you say to that person, you know, can be asked about later on. Any documents you show them are going to be fair game. So just be mindful that that discussion is fair game. Uh, so I would just add to that that for that reason, because it's not privileged, the first and last thing you should say to any person that you talk to should be, um, it's very important that you tell me the truth. Tell the truth. Because, number one, that's that's actually correct. That's what they should be providing you, truthful information. But number two, if they ever get asked, you know, were, did Mr. Miller ask you, actually have a conversation with you before you sat down for a deposition or testifying in trial today? Yes, he did. What did he tell you? He told me to tell the truth. That's the first thing they will remember. And it might be the only thing that they remember from that conversation. But you want to come off looking like a good guy, a good guy uh, and so you should tell people to tell, tell you the truth. As opposed to, Mr. Villa told me he'd give me 5,000 bucks if I signed this affidavit. <laughs> it's the second thing I tell him. Now let me talk about, a, about another type of witnesses, the friendly witness. And this is really sort of a, categor a, a subcategory of fact witnesses. 
okay? Um, witnesses who have, uh, who are fact witnesses, they're not parties to the case, um, but they have, they're friendly to your client. You know, maybe they're employees of your client. Um, although all of us who've been doing this long enough have had employees of clients um, who have then ended up, before the case has gone to trial, leaving the employment uh, of your corporate client uh, under unfavorable circumstances and, and then becoming someone who is not going to be cooperative at all. So you want to keep that in mind. But, you know, your, uh, um, you know, could be relatives or friends of your clients uh, who are present. And, and, you know, they're going to tell the truth, um, but they're predisposed to being helpful. Um, those witnesses, I would say, you know, almost always um, you're going to not want to take their deposition. Or more, certainly more often than not, you're, you're going to not want to take their deposition. Uh, because, you know, again, you get all the disadvantages that I've talked about about taking their deposition. Uh, and if you take, and, 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 you, and you've got a lot, and if you don't take their deposition, you've got every reason to believe it's going to work out fine because they're your client's brother, and of course they're going to show up for trial even if they've moved out of state and they're beyond the, the subpoena power. Um, and, you know, they're going to work with you beforehand and tell you, you know, everything they know. They're going to probably let you prepare them, keeping in mind that your preparation session wouldn't be privileged. So under those circumstances, um, generally you're not going to want to take their deposition. Although, again, keep in mind, as I said before, uh, nobody can ever completely... You can never be completely sure, um, you know, some terrible fate is not going to befall the witness uh, and, and, you know, they're going to, you know, if they die before trial, you're out of luck. So you always have to keep that in the back of your mind, but, you know, again, you, you sort of do a calculation. If your friendly witness is 97 years old, then maybe you take their deposition. If your friendly witness is 22 years old and healthy, uh, then, you know, maybe you take your chances and, and don't take their deposition. Um, now, another type of witness is a witness that, and, and these are generally corporate witnesses rather than individuals, are witnesses who are of interest principally because of the documents uh, that, they, uh, that they have. Uh, and uh, in, in almost any case, uh, and particularly in business litigation cases, but really I think almost any sort of civil case, there are, there are witnesses out there that have documents that you want to get, that you want to get hold of. Uh, and they're corporate witnesses, and they're likely not going anywhere, um, you know, some hospital or bank or whatever. They're going to give you their documents, and when you go to trial, you don't have to worry about them being dead because they're, they're a business, and they're, and they're a business that doesn't look like they're going to be going out of business. Um, you can, in those consideration, in, in those circumstances, um, take, get the do a deposition subpoena, but for documents, uh, and then get the documents, have the documents delivered uh, at some point in advance, um, and then review the documents, and then make a decision whether you actually need to call them uh, as witnesses to come testify. Uh, at deposition about about those documents, um, it used to be that the Massachusetts state court rules until a few years ago did not have a provision to allow you to subpoena documents from a company separately 
from taking their deposition. Uh, so what you used to have to do was serve a deposition on the custodian of records and say to them, okay, show up on you know, January 20th and bring the attached you know, documents that respond to the, to the attached list. And I think sort of a, a practice generally arose um, where um, the lawyer would serve that subpoena and say, you know, I'm asking, I'm serving you with a subpoena, requiring you to show up um, with these documents and testify about these documents, but why don't you just deliver the documents by that date and will you agree that, you know, if I then need to take your deposition, I can do it later. Um, that's been solved now, though, because they've changed the rules, and I think it's Rule 45, that um, in a deposition, uh, subpoena allows you to subpoena documents uh, without having someone come in and testify. And so what you're seeing more now is um, service of a subpoena on an entity saying, you know, um, or, or, or service of two subpoenas. Sometimes it's combined into one. I just did one last week that combined into one where we say, by March 13th, you know, please deliver the documents that are set out on Exhibit A, and then on March 31, please show up uh, to provide testimony about those documents. Uh, so you, you know, you get the documents in advance. Um, Is that testimony to show that they're business records? Is that what you're talking about? Uh, or do you no, I actually, in this, in, in this one, uh, this, was, this was one where, um, I mean, it can be that, but uh, in this case that I'm talking about where I just did it, we actually wanted to take a 30B6 deposition um, of the company. There are questions we wanted to ask um, independent of the documents about what happened in connection with a certain, uh, with, a, with a certain transaction. So it's a, it's a, it's a lease dispute, I'm representing one party to a lease dispute. Um, the, I'm representing the landlord. There's a tenant on the other side. There is a dispute about um, how the lease should be interpreted uh, and, and what happened in connection with the lease. And um, there's a real estate broker uh, who's involved. Um, and this is the broker for the, like I said, I represent the landlord. This is the broker for the tenant. This is a commercial property. Um, so we want to take the deposition of the test, uh, deposition testimony of the, of the broker for the tenant. So we've served them with a notice that says produce documents on such and, by such and such a day and then show up three weeks later and provide testimony, not just about the documents, but about these various topics that we're listing uh, here. And that's what a 30, again, we'll, you'll hear more about it, but that's what a 30B6 deposition is. Um, the way you take a deposition of a company. You tell the company what topics you want them to testify about, and the company has the obligation of, um, of fig picking who the witnesses are and educating those witnesses, making sure those witnesses are educated uh, on, on the topics. Um, so um, let's, uh, let's talk for a bit about the timing of depositions uh, and, the, and the order of deponents. Um, generally, I'd say, you know, a high percentage of cases, um, you're going to take the deposition, you're going to do what we call written discovery, thanks, uh, written discovery uh, before you take depositions. And written discovery means interrogatories and document requests. Uh, and 
uh, almost always you'll do document requests before you do uh, you know before you take uh, take depositions. Interrogatories, I think, are something you're going to want to give more thought to. When I first started practicing, when dinosaurs roamed the earth, it was pretty common that you would just, you know, almost routinely serve document requests and interrogatories, get all of that, and then you'd go to the deposition phase. Um, As I've gone on in practice, I've come to believe that, you know, interrogatories, um, a lot of them can be just not all that helpful. Um, You get a lot of mushy answers. And I think certain types of interrogatories are more helpful than others. Um, interrogatories really where you ask people to, uh, to identify things. You know, you've claimed that my client made you know, misrepresentations to you. State every misrepresentation that was made to you. you know. um, provide the name of every person in the accounts receivable department. Uh, who had anything to do, you know, with um, with this particular transaction? Um, y- you've got to be concerned when you serve interrogatories. That one of the negatives of serving interrogatories is uh, that, in the same way that when you ask questions at depositions, you're giving away some of your own thinking about what's important in the case. When you ask interrogatories, you're doing the same thing. Uh, you're also helping the other side think, oh, this is where they're going to really be zeroing in on my deposition, uh, so I need to really, you know, really prepare for this. So, again, you got to just sort of, it's, it's all, it's, it's strategy. It's not a, it's, this is not a one-size-fits-all. I'd say, again, most of the time, asking for documents uh, before depositions makes sense, um, and... Uh, asking interrogatories, I think that requires a little bit more thought. And then again, also, what particular interrogatories uh, you're going to ask requires a little bit more thought. So, so Peter, um, does and for the panel, has anybody tried to incorporate requests for admissions into their deposition strategy, whether it's taking helpful nuggets after a deposition and then using an RFA on that, or using my head of time. I know that when I get RFAs, I hate them, and I hate them in the context of depositions as well, but it does, seems to be a seldom-used tool. But does anybody look at those in the context of depots? I've done both. Um, I've had certain cases where it's immediately apparent from document production that there are going to be certain defenses that are completely unavailable to the other side, and I have sent requests for admissions immediately to lock those down and be done with them forever. We never have to talk about it ever again. I've also, you know, either by luck or skill, had golden nuggets come out at depositions where it's obvious that they're dead, dead to rights on that certain issue, and you follow up as soon as you possibly can after the deposition with the request for admission. I, I find them to be a very useful tool. Does everybody know what requests for admission are? Because they're, so, they're, um, they're not something that 
happens in every, you know, in every case. I think sort of most lawyers, even relatively junior lawyers, understand the concept of document request, <clears throat> interrogatories, and depositions. Requests for admission are where you put to the other side um, a fact and, and ask them to admit it. Um, and if they, if, I think if they deny it um, and you have to go and prove it at trial, then you're allowed to recover your expense um, in connection with having, in connection with having to prove it. And it can be followed up with an interrogatory saying, you know, tell me why you're denying it. But just think about it as part of your deposition strategy. I mean, again, it goes to Peter's point of having the broader picture about why you're taking the deposition, what the goal of it is, but it can really put the other side in a pickle, right? You go to a deposition, the witness says something, they say a big declarative statement, then you say admit, then you just kind of pull from that, and they don't like it. What are they going to do, <laughs> Right. So let me, and just one, one thing I want to point out about interrogatories to keep in mind. Um, you are limited both in federal and state court in Massachusetts in the number of interrogatories that you can ask. Um, and one thing I always like to do, even in cases where I do serve interrogatories before taking a deposition, I do not like to use up all of my interrogatories uh, because inevitably there will be things I screw up at the deposition wish I'd asked, uh, and I'd like to at least have some tool available to me uh, to go back and try and get the information. An interrogatory is a very imperfect tool for that because, you know, a deposition, you get some evasive answer, you have the opportunity to just keep asking the questions till you get, you know, a non-evasive answer. If you, if, if you serve a follow-up interrogatory because you forgot to ask some question, and you get an evasive answer, you're kind of stuck with it. But I still like to at least have something in my back pocket so when I've screwed up, as I inevitably do, um, I've got some way to at least try and get the information. But one other thing to keep in mind uh, with respect to that, um, <clears throat> Massachusetts Superior Court rule, um, uh, let's see, which rule is it? One of the Massachusetts Superior Court rules, um, Rule 30, um, says that you, and a lot of people don't know this, uh, you have to serve interrogatories in state court within a year, uh, I think, of the case being filed. So um, if you end up with a lengthy discovery period and you take a deposition, uh, you take depositions as you usually do toward the end of the discovery period and you say, oh, I wish I'd asked that question. Well, I'll serve an interrogatory. If you're beyond a year, uh, you, could be, you could be out of luck. And I have seen that happen uh, before. So that's so something to keep in mind. the last couple minutes, can you, do, can you talk just for a few minutes about you know, top down, bottom up, and the ordering of depositions? Uh, sure. And, and um, generally, uh, and again, I think I touched on this at the, be, at, at the beginning, I mean, as far as your order of depositions. Um, in a case where you're going to take a number of depositions. And I, by the way, get involved in a lot of cases where we're not going to take a lot of depositions. Um, we're going to just take, you know, we're going to take the deposition of, you know, of, of, the, of the party on the other side and maybe, you know, one or two other people. Uh, and I, I get involved in fewer cases, and, and I think some, probably some of my 
fellow panelists who you know are at the bigger firms are involved in more cases than I am these days, where they take lots of depositions. You know, where you're just going to you know take all all sorts of depositions. So top down means you know do you do you take the deposition of the most important player that would be taking the deposition of the most important player first. Maybe it's the party on the other side. Um, and, um, bo and bottom up is you take the depositions of the witnesses first um, and the people that have, are likely to have less knowledge first. Uh, the, the, the advantage of taking, of going sort of bottom up uh, is that by the time you get to the person on the other side, you have a lot more information. I mean, ideally, you're going to be in the best situation possible to, you know, the, the best position possible to take the best deposition possible of the key player on the other side if you have, going into that deposition, all of the information in advance. That's the way investigations proceed, almost always. I mean, if you're, you know, if you do criminal work or government investigation work like I do, you know, the, the government's first interview is usually not with the key player. Um, the government first is going to be trying to find out whatever information they can about, you know, about the other side uh, or about the matter before they go and they, and, they can, and they conduct the key interview. Of course, the government has the... they show up at their house. <laughs> right. And, of course, the government sometimes has the opportunity that you don't in civil cases to, you know, to talk to the key person more than, more than once. Uh, although one thing you can keep, you should keep in mind, particularly if you're in state court and you can take a deposition that lasts more than a day, uh, and and you've got the key player on the other side, and and you can you know easily stretch it out to two days, is you might want to take their deposition early, uh, and then get other information, and then finish their deposition uh, after you've uh, after you've gotten information from the other side. Of course, that's pretty Machiavellian. Uh, and, and one thing you learn uh, the more you do this is so much of scheduling is out of your control uh, and so much of it is just you know, based on the reality of people's schedules. So you might have this grand plan, okay, I'm going to take day one of the deposition of the you know, Mr. Big or Mrs. Big, uh, Ms. Big on, uh, on, on the first day of depositions, then I'm going to take the depositions of the other 15 people that work at the company and then I'm going to take you know, the second day of Ms. Big's deposition, so I have the best of both worlds, and, and the advantage of taking her deposition first, uh, which is, you know, one, I, I sort of get the big picture, and I get her unvarnished, okay? She hasn't heard, you know, through her lawyer um, what I'm going to ask of all the other employees of the company so that she knows where I'm coming from. That's the advantage of sort of one of the advantages of taking, um, you know, the key deposition first, so I get the advantage of doing that, and then I get to learn everything, and I get to take her deposition, or part two of her deposition again after I've learned everything. When you were saying top-down, bottom-up, I was actually interpreting that question more to mean, or another consideration to think about is do you take the deposition of senior management first? Yeah. And, and maybe you, know, you start sending a deposition notice for the CEO of the company, you get a lot of pushback from that and I know because I'm usually the one doing the pushback. Um, <laughs> but, but the point is that can be a pressure point or, or take depositions of a board. Um, 
that, that's kind of how I was interpreting the question. That, that, but that's another strategic yeah, it consideration can, to think about. It can it can drive settlement. So um, I think we're up on uh, time, but it is a key consideration. Most of them tend to be junior people, and you work your way up. But by the time you get there, the senior person, the the principal person on the other side. You know, they're usually really well prepared because they've seen all the documents you've used with everybody else. They've had the chance of all the questions that have been asked. Um, they know what other people have said. So they really have a, um, a lot of parameters to, to use. Okay. Well, I'm excited because I actually stood through this whole thing. So, all right, excellent. Thank <laughs> so you. I'm making Thank progress. You.